On this episode, we're talking block management. Block management is a public access program in Montana where private landowners uh, can enter their private land in the program for a monetary fee, which opens up public access to hunters, uh, both resident and non-resident alike. So it's an interesting talk, and we have a full house, like I said, with uh, Juanita Vero. Her family ranch is in the program and has been in the program since its program's inception and even dates back a little bit further. And she shares shares some stories about her grandfather and how they they manage public access. We also have Jason Cool, who is the uh, Access Bureau chief, and he gives us an inside look at where the program, how the program started, where it is right now, and and where they hope the program goes from here. We also have John Kuntz, who's a resident of Miles City and a friend of Matt's and a public land advocate. With John's career, he's met and has access to a lot of private land, yet he chooses to still hunt block management and public land and sincerely cares about publicly accessible hunting. And of course, we have the host of the show, uh, Matt Ranella, who deeply cares about publicly accessible hunting. So it's a great show. Hope you enjoy. And if you're listening to this, it's probably Christmas Day, so Merry Christmas to all the Hunt Quietly uh, podcasters. Thanks, guys. This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Okay, so we're here talking uh, about block management program in Montana, and let's do some introductions. We'll just go around the horn here, uh, starting with Juanita. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for um, for having me. And yeah, Juanita Vero of the uh, EBRL Ranch, and um, full disclosure, I'm married to Matt Ranella, but um, I'm not a hunter, and the block management my experience with it is is our our family ranches in the program um and yeah we'll as as we continue we'll 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 talk about what yeah our challenges and opportunities and and observations and you're you're a county commissioner in montana too right oh that too yes one of the county commissioners uh in missoula county western montana right on uh, Jason, Jason Cool, uh, tell us about yourself and what you do. Evening, guys, uh, and Juanita, good to meet you. Thank you for having us on and talking block management. It's something near and dear to my heart. Uh, so I oversee the block management program on a statewide scale. I'm based in Helena. Uh, work with our seven regional access managers who see the program locally, but I help uh, help them and help coordinated on a statewide scale, not only with payments for landowners, but then just more consistency in the program and how we implement changes that come out of the legislature and things within the program. Uh, it's kind of my rule. So thanks for having us. Right on. And uh, John Kuntz. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Quietly board member. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I moved to Montana a little over 30 years ago. I own a, uh, an agricultural implement dealership and repair. Um, I know just about everybody in region seven. If I don't know them, I've certainly heard, heard their name more than once. Um, and I, I've become very passionate about a public accessible hunting, uh, especially like block management, conservation easements, things of that nature. Um, I've helped Matt a couple times now with some fundraisers for block management and some work projects we did on a couple of ranches uh, uh, for for appreciation to block management. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Cool. And obviously Matt Ranella. Probably best known as as Juanita's spouse. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. I like to think so. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's my one redeeming feature. So <laughs> one thing you know, I, people people might be wondering about our 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 situation, baby. Um, oh yeah. So Juanita and I live on opposite sides of Montana, which is a big state. She has uh, work responsibilities being the county commissioner over there and their ranch that keep her there. And then I have a job over here that keeps me here, but I, um, it's worked out. We well. like to say it's the secret to a long, happy marriage. Hey, we got, we just got married. We got married in 2014 when we were both in our forties, early forties. And I like to say that I'm one still in my forties, baby. <laughs> Yeah, lucky you. Uh, when I w- I like to say that we would have Juanita would have gotten married a long time ago, but all the all the guys she liked lived too close by. <laughs> you had a good what seven hours? Yeah, is that how far it is from Missoula? Nine, 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 nine for me. I'm a I'm a I'm a wandering driver. One thing that's stop stop and gawk. One thing that's interesting about my friend John, who's right here in the same room with me, is that John, being an implement dealer, has a lot of connections, and he has places he can hunt. He doesn't need to be concerned about the future of publicly accessible hunting. It's not. He's he's involved in this stuff for purely selfish, self reasons and his passion for it is really inspiring because it's not something that affects him directly i don't know it's it's just i don't know yeah. john i don't blow we need smoke to get up into your that. ass but we need to get into the advocacy stuff that you guys and john are, are working on for sure that uh, that's definitely needs to be a talking point um, yeah and i don't know how you want to dive into this jim uh so, you want to cover first but yeah Thanks everyone for joining us, Juanita. Thank you so much for being here, Jason, as well. Um, let's let's just jump into um, the background of the program, Jason. Tell us, you know, tell us about the program. You can give a brief history, where it's been, where it is, where it's going, what your day to day is, and then we can we can go from there. Sure. So uh, block management is our Montana's version of a walk-in hunting or a hunting access program. Um, 
it, it is one of the biggest in the country, if not the biggest. I, I like to say it is the biggest. It's got over 6 million or close to 6 million private land acres and then another 1.1, 1.2 million acres of public land made accessible through the program. Um, we'd be remiss to not honor and look to our private land ownerships. That is who makes up this program. It is because of private landowners and their willingness to allow public access onto their property that this program exists. In Montana, it has uh, really two different types. One is kind of a sign-in box or on the landscape and just sign your name and go. Um, people often call that or it is called type one. And then we have a type two block management area, um, which is more limited reservation style. Either meet with a landowner, get a reservation through FWP, visit somebody on site. Um, that, that's kind of how the two, the two programs work. Um, landowners do receive compensation in terms of an impact payment and a daily rate. So there is a rate set by the department for a, a per dollar rate, and it's $13 per hunter day right now. Um, the legislature actually sets the maximum that any one landowner can receive, and that is 25000 So anyone landowner enrolled in block management could receive up to $25,000 on an annual basis. Um, and we, we count coupons, we count signatures, we count permission slips to establish that, um, to, to basically to compensate for a landowner. And then on top of that, Landowners do receive a complimentary sportsman without bear if they're a resident or a non-resident big game combo license. Um, those benefits are free of charge to the landowner. They may be designated to employee or family member. And then we also provide a magazine subscription. But I think beyond the payment piece, one of the biggest things that landowners see from block management or desire to have out of block management and their participation in the program is our hunter management services, if you want to call it that. We provide um, technicians on the ground, about 45 seasonals every year, plus our additional full-time staff, where we actually patrol properties, talk to hunters, uh, help make sure that things are going okay on the properties, talk with landowners, et cetera. So it, it, the program does exist because of private landownership, but then we also have had the support through the governor's office, the legislature of, of old. I mean, the program um, formally is 26 years old. 2021 was our 25th anniversary. Um, in terms of a payment, it existed before that, uh, but in 20, 1996 was the first year that landowners started to receive those financial and license benefits that I talked about. So the program over time has been relatively steady in terms of landowner participation. Um, we haven't seen big ebbs and swings. I mean, we've seen um, around 1,200 landowners, 12 to 1,300 landowners every year participate since 1996, and that's still true today. We have about 1,280 in uh, 2022 that are participating. The acreage uh, has changed over time. Um, we've gone from just over 7 million private land acres to now just over six. So over, over the last uh, 15 years or so, we have lost some private land acres, acreage. Um, some of that's due to changing hands. So in, in, in Juanita's country over there in the, the Blackfoot, we've had some um, nature conservancy lands that went from private ownership into public land ownership. At the same time, we've also seen in John and Matt's country over there in eastern Montana, a lot of larger properties um, being exchanged for smaller properties, meaning we're, we're keeping up with the landowner relationships in terms of just numbers of landowners, but the people that um, have bigger properties have sold or gone to other means of access. And then uh, we're, we're kind of 
exchanging that for smaller properties. So over the last 10 to 15 years, we have decreased in, in overall acreage in the program. Um, where, where I see the program going in the future um, is to be determined. Honestly, um, as the landscape scale with Montana land ownership is changing, um, it's really difficult to know where the, the public access program we have here in Love is going to go. Um, you know, looking at land values in the last two to three years in particularly Western Montana have doubled, if not tripled in some places. It's um, really difficult for the traditional Montana rancher to be able to make it, to be able to expand, to keep their next generation on the landscape without uh, some different financial incentives. And so block management certainly is that piece. We can provide a financial incentive, but it's definitely not the one that's going to make landowners the most money. Um, it, it, the, the benefit of having wildlife management, the benefit of having hunter management, uh, on the landscape is really where we see the the programmatic scale to benefit to landowners. But where it goes in the future, I'd be happy to discuss. So, so there's what also you're saying a, is there's also a, one of the benefits to landowners is is some kind of insurance as well, right? Well, so Montana's recreational liability law actually covers uh, anybody participating in our programs, but it also covers anybody who provides free public access without valuable consideration is the language. So as long as you're not getting paid a trespass fee, you're covered in Montana for recreational liability. I see. I was going to say, Jason, what, what you're saying is the, the show Yellowstone is, is, <laughs> is pretty accurate. Although I've seen maybe 10 minutes of Yellowstone, uh, it's driven a lot of interest to Montana along with other things, but yes, yeah, certainly that. And now uh, the prequel to Yellowstone, I think it's 1923 or something like that. We've got 1883. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, so we've got some uh, film sites located on private land block management areas. We had to shut down the public access to in parts of the BMA this year because of the filming of the new show. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. No, it isn't. <laughs> well, it's a great show. <laughs> just uh, so Juanita, why don't, why don't you tell us wh what it's like on the, uh, E-Bar-L ranch and, and how the ranch has been in the program and give us the other side of the fence perspective. Yeah. And I don't, um, know if this is other, other side of the fence perspective, but, um, yeah. And Jason, I wasn't really sure when block management, I thought it started earlier than 1996. Are you just saying payments? began That's, in 1996 yeah right yep yep so a lot of landowners claim to be the first landowner in block management and i don't know who the real story is it's kind of like in south dakota they all claim to have the first pheasant or whatever <laughs> but um in in montana and I the, thought the didn't yep. start in eastern montana first i, I that's well what I understand yeah it was. yeah yes i mean yes but there's also a 1974 uh forest experimental contract over in your part of the world too. So I don't know exactly who claims the, the first, the first property, but regardless, the first payments were in 1996, but before that, um, landowners were doing it kind of on their own. Um, yeah, yeah. That was my experience or, and so this is, this is great to hear. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the 1976 experimental forest contract, was that with, University of Montana's forestry program and the Lubrec Experimental Forest? 
it wasn't with Rubric. Oh, it was in the it was oh, in the okay. Blackfoot for some reason. I'm not sure. I'd have to look back and pull that out. But it was it's some oh, kind of I'd game management curious. thing. Yeah, right. So that was as part of these ongoing discussions about how block management is today. Is it had a it has a long history. I mean, 30, 35 years of of agreements between landowners and allowing public access, um, formally or informally. I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a large, still a large contingent of public that are landowners that allow public access that are, are not in block management, but. And so for our situation, I mean, this started issues in the, in the sixties with my, again, this is a story. I mean, I, I wasn't conscious or, or alive um, when this started. Um, my my grandfather, I mean, this is family oral tradition, so you're going to have to, you know, correct us with the facts. But is that uh, hunting was, uh, and hunters were kind of um, rampant or driving around um, on our, you know, logging roads that, or, uh, you know, timberland logging roads that were adjacent to our ranch lands or ranch lands where we um, leased timberlands and then ran our horses there in the fall uh, for grazing. And um, so fences were cut or gates were left open or people shot at horses or there, there was just kind of mayhem apparently. Um, wild West. And <laughs> you're right. Wild, wild West in the Blackfoot. And the story again, oral tradition is, and my grandfather was kind of a, a temperamental character. And, and he w- started to take to carrying his mother's purse gun around in his gloves. Um, and he was going to patrol and take the law into his own hands, if you will. So uh, he, he was very frustrated with hunter behavior. Fortunately, he had a, a neighbor who was a little more even keeled. And um, the neighbor worked with our local game warden and various uh, state representatives and, and, and entered into this, you know, kind of nascent block management program, which was just walk-in hunting. And then instead of my grandfather shooting at people, uh, we would allow Fish, Wildlife and Parks or the game warden and, and staff to, like you said, do the hunter management. And, and because it was walk-in, um, you know, there's there's a, a different type of hunter was on the landscape then. Someone who was maybe a little more committed to the process or committed to the the endeavor, and um, and then it was just the behavior changed. And then the the great thing is that the hunters themselves started to police each other, or uh, police might be a strong word, but just that that ethic and that behavior changed. I mean, there was an expectation. Um, and that was really beneficial. And then also just to have some public buy-in and then have people be invested in the property or just the, the landscape. Um, and then people would take care of it. If this is habitat they wanted to protect or hunt in and um, they were just more invested. You have that public investment at a, at a gut level and a ground level. Um, it just helped. Uh, our operation that much more um, and you really needed, I guess. So the moral of the story was we really benefited from these public private partnerships. And, um, and that's just kind of a, a story, you know, this, this is kind of part of an ethic of, of the Blackfoot watershed. And so, um, yeah, this program has been hugely beneficial for us and 
really not much of a headache at all. Um, and we're happy to be able to, to, to participate in it. It's really interesting that you say that Juanita too. Um, <clears throat> even in the sixties, it was identified as the problem and, and potentially block management has played some kind of a solution in that. But I could have that same conversation with a landowner today. Actually, I did leave him last fall about once those green signs went up, the quality of a hunter actually improved and their experience as a landowner and providing public access uh, improved over just even just ask first type um, open gates or whatever. Um, just It's just interesting to hear that, that that happened then. And then 50 years later, here we are, 60 years <laughs> yeah. later, and it's still, still, the same, still the same experience for landowners. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't, the complaints and the, the frustration and the, the, the bad behavior of my grandfather, even, um, that was happening in the 60s. I feel like it, you know, block management as we know it kind of went into place in the 70s. So, yeah, we didn't, the, the program, yeah, it, it took a bit to put into place. But the, yeah, 70s is when I think we started. Let's, let's get into that because, uh, doing some research for this for this podcast i was looking at some of the surveys both from the landowners that are in block management and the hunter participation and there's like a 90% either satisfied or very satisfied with the program from both sides of the fence and certainly that doesn't implicate that there's two sides of the fence that are at odds with one another but um there's a high approval rate for the program yeah, there really is on a you know on a landowner scale. I think either you you like it or you don't do it. I mean that that kind of probably plays into that overall satisfaction. Um, from a hunter's perspective, um, generally speaking, hunters are, are relatively satisfied with with the program. Uh, it provides a great experience. I mean that it it from for even me taking my kids after work or just going down the road here. We live out in the countryside, but I still take them over to BMAs and we go out for a hike and. Um, you know, we might see a mule deer or, or doe or something, but you know, it, it's just a great opportunity to get out and really, really do appreciate, uh, the private landowners who make that happen. Um, the, the program as a, as a whole has had a 90 plus percent satisfaction rate amongst landowners and hunters, at least back to 2007, when we were starting to do some of those surveys and even prior to that. Um, yeah, I saw I think, 2003. Yeah. Jason, how how does that compare with other states? I don't. I've never even asked or been curious about that. What, what do other? You know, I, I don't. I don't know honestly. Um, one of the things that Montana does is we do have those seasonal patrollers or technicians, hunting access technicians. We have on staff. Where my experience with other states, they don't have that. They post some signs, the generic rule, go for it. Montana is a little bit different. Where the landowners can customize the rules. So let's just say you don't want any mule deer hunting or you don't want any pheasant hunting or you don't want any, uh, you, you want to keep the first week of the general rifle season for your family. Montana's block management can accommodate those landowner needs and desires. And I think that helps uh, keep that satisfaction up there and keep landowner participation as well. And, there's, and then there's also the landowner has options in how the signups. Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. They can, yes. They can, they can the landowner can opt to have people sign in at the regional fish, wildlife and parks headquarters. The landowner can do their own signups. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Yep. You can, you can have us help you with reservations as a landowner. You can take the reservations if you want to meet everybody that comes on your place first. Um, some, some absentee landowners or even local landowners say, I don't want to deal with hunters. I don't want to, I don't want to have to interact with hunters. I'm too busy in the fall shipping calves or whatever. Uh, keep trying to get my third cut of hay up or whatever. They just don't want to, don't have this time to, to interact with hunters. And so we, we take a, like I said, that type one and put a box out on the landscape. And that's, that's the hunter's form of permission. It's uh, somebody else administering um, permission or, or you yourself administering permission to yourself, more or less. Um, but every time you do sign those slips, or every time you do get permission from a landowner, you're, you're getting, you are getting permission. Um, again, it's, it's, it's not like just open, no permission required walking on 99% of BMAs. There are a couple that have no permission required, but most of them, uh, either you're signing up yourself to give yourself permission or you're going to work with a landowner or somebody else to get permission to hunt that private opportunity. Jason, what are some of the reasons uh, people leave the program uh, other than, like you said, splitting up the ranches and selling and downsizing? What are some right. of the so, so number one, far and away, even our survey data will say land sales are the number one reason that landowners leave block management. Um, that's that's clearly number one. Um, number two has been typically unrelated uh, FWP positions, if that makes sense. So when it comes to grizzly bears or bison or other things that landowners are not happy with, they'll use their block management as kind of their their card in their pocket to say, well, if you don't if you don't get a handle on your grizzly bears, I'm pulling my block management out. I've heard that one specifically. Really? Um, other, other ones are, um, you know, not enough money or could find money other places. Um, but even survey data doesn't really pick up on the hunter behavior theme. There is some of that. I mean, I've got a picture of uh, sign-in box over here by Townsend where I picked up 37 cigarette butts right by the sign-in box. I don't know if the guy kicked him out of his floorboard or what, but just, pisses you off when you see that kind of stuff. Um, but that's certainly yeah. a bad experience for a landowner. So. We've heard the stories of the guy taking a dump right at the sign-in box. Oh, sure. Yep. Yep. That leaving stuff in the boxes that you wouldn't want to touch. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, our, our friend and your colleague, Jason, Miles Mouché, he just sent me sure. a picture. He was out on opening day last weekend and he took a picture he pulled in just a few minutes after a guy and he took a picture from the front of his truck and it's like toilet paper and excrement and his license plate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, See, I don't, but in the situation. interesting thing, the interesting thing you said is like your ranking was not what I would expect. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have thought it's... that I would have, I, I would have thought that, hunter behavior would be much higher on the list and i would have thought that the ability to get more money from land trust or an outfitter or and just some private individual that wanted to lease the place would be and i do worry that those are going to become more prevalent like like for the reasons that you alluded to a few minutes ago about the changing demographics etc yeah, I think you're you're right, Matt. I think the um, like I said, the future is unknown. the The compensation piece, in terms of just straight out money, is not 
probably going to be a landowner's number one way to make money um, if that's what they need to do. Um, that we, said, we, isn't we, there? I heard. I keep hearing a rumor that there's talk of like doubling the payment. There is talk currently about uh, the governor's budget proposal going to a, a fifty thousand dollar cap. So right now we're at a twenty five thousand dollar cap. The department and the governor are pushing for a, a fifty thousand dollar cap. So um, you know, fifty thousand bucks is no no chump change to anybody. But um, you know, if so you're looking you're at other. Saying- that the landowner, the cap will go from 25, which it is right now, to 50,000. Potentially, if the legislature would approve that. Yep. yep. Would there also be an increase in the daily payment from $13? Yeah, we've we've talked about that. And even the Private Land Public Wildlife Advisory Committee that met last week here in Helena, we're looking at an $18, possibly $20, 100-day instead of the 13. Um, so nothing wow. drastic, but... but uh, just from a inflationary standpoint in 1996, it was a $10 hunter day. Here we are in 2022 and it's a $13 hunter day. Um, so it should, it should be on just on the CPI or inflation index. We should be about 1850 or so. I think if we, if you use the $10 starting point, um, you know, whether or not that goes through is yet to be seen. I think, you know, there's enough Montana landowners and legislators who are ad- access advocates. Um, usually those times when those cap increases go, we see all, all sides come together to support that, whether it be ag, ag industry groups or sportsman's clubs or groups or um, individual legislators, whatever. It doesn't matter what party they're from, they're all supporting public access. And so I don't think the, the cap doubling will be too much of an issue um the only caveat to that is again it's it's subject to the legislature and you never know what you're going to get there um we we did increase the cap uh in 2021 from 15,000 to 25,000 so we we we've kind of started that ball rolling and so that may that may hinder us too in that process but we'll see what 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 percentage of the of the landowners are receiving the max of twenty five thousand. Um. Oh, probably there's only about twenty now. Um, Out of twelve hundred, so, you said. Yeah, so less than two percent, one and a half percent. The landowners currently are at the maximum payment. Um, it was more when it was fifteen thousand, but now now it's there's just there's very few and. I mean, and what goes, what, what goes into calculating that? So overall it's the number of signatures or the number of permissions or the number of hunter days, uh, is what we call it that you have on your property. So right now it's a a $13 hunter day. And so if you had 1900 hunter days, you'd be at 25,000 or so. And it has nothing to do with acreage or wildlife nope. numbers or habitat nope. or anything else just purely hunter, hunter in montana montana's numbers. model has been straight hunter days we do have a little bit of money we add to contracts for some weed management um we also provide a little bit for an enrollment payment and a couple other things if you partner with your neighbors to become a, a they call it an aggregate block management area rather than just an individual bma but and yeah everything in montana is based on the hunter day so it's okay. it's all That's, based on. Yeah. Oh, 
How many? I have no uh, idea what our hunter days are, but we're getting oh fifteen, seventeen thousand dollars. Maybe we'll split the difference. Say sixteen thousand. I honestly sure. don't know. I need to check, but and I have no idea what our hunter days are. Yeah, I'd have to look to Anita. I think the um, you know, the thing to keep in mind is if if we do increase the daily rate, but don't increase the cap we'd see more landowners hit that, that new cap. So, you, you know, if we went to a, just say a $20 hunter day instead of a $13 hunter day, but the legislature doesn't approve our cap increase, we'll have, we'll have right. more people you hitting it. You, you, you guys will be hitting that 25,000. I, I would guarantee it. How, uh, how, how many of the landowners enrolled in block management also take advantage of the PALA program by allowing access to landlocked pieces and adding to the purse that they get? In, right. in answering this, Jason, will you provide a little background on Palace so people know? Sure. I'm sorry. So, what so, was the word again? Yeah, I couldn't. I can't quite understand the word. Pala, P-A-L-A. Public uh, thank you. access land, land agreements. You got uh -huh. it. Yeah, good job. Good job. Another thank government you. acronym and program. <laughs> so, so yes, there are a good number. I mean. Um, of the PALA agreements we have, which are about 40 every year, probably at least half are these block are, you've only been, cooperators. These, these agreements have only been, this is a new thing, these agreements, right? right. Just the last yep, couple yep. of years? Yep, yep, exactly. So the really the 2020 year, I think, was our first year of actually fully implementing the program. Um, so we've had about three seasons now. About half the agreements are current block management landowners also providing access to inaccessible public land um so this is and, landlocked and, public land right 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 so, so there's there's a variety of things there i mean the the block management agreements themselves landowners can provide access to inaccessible or landlocked public land um through block management in 21 we had onyx do an analysis and i think there's 618,000 acres of inaccessible public land so landlocked public land opened up every fall because of block management so just like in Juanita situation neighboring neighboring forest service or neighboring public land that that was landlocked and now the public has access to it through block management specifically and we have another layer of, of this which is just another annual payment for um, access to inaccessible public land and you don't have to be in block to do that but landowners would receive a payment for that that inaccessible this is the public land program. access. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Pala, Pala, Pal Act, I think is how it started. Originally, when it, the bill was going through in the legislature, a landowner could not do both um, block management and Pala, but that language for block management got removed. And so, yeah, now we have a good, I don't know, probably 20 or so block management cooperators who are also having, also have a Pala agreement to provide access to inaccessible public land. So, so that's above and beyond the 25k cap for block exactly cap. yep okay. yep exactly yep um getting back to the the bad hunter behavior uh Juanita have you have you had any recent uh experiences like that because you, you do hear a lot of of, of that of, as being somewhat of an issue uh yeah no nothing I'm um Gosh, the last time there was bad behavior, we had a horse shot. Um, it's been 20 years or so. 
since that's happened. Um, but it's, it's a small stuff. You guys are talking about the cigarette butts or shit piles or whatever. And it, it, it is toilet paper blooms out in the woods that drive you a little crazy. I mean, it's just such an eyesore and you're like, come on, man. Um, yeah. those are, those are my exact <laughs> words. It's like, come on, can't, can't we do better than this? <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's just, but, but the cutting fence and the driving around and all the kind of craziness that we haven't seen that. And, and again, cause people, yeah. Um, I think people recognize it. You know, this is a, a privilege or an opportunity that they, they want, they're invested in. And, and other hunters, like I said, are out on the landscape kind of helping monitor behavior. Um, so, like, I, it's been really successful for us. And, again, I, I'm happy to maybe I'm in disagreement with my husband because this is the Hunt Quietly podcast. But I like having people out on the landscape because my hope is that then they will uh, give a shit about it later right. and, 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 and take care of it. And so um, that's the end goal. But you're right. The, when things get crowded and we have to deal with, yeah, the, that recreational pressure, that's, that's real. And um, I'm, I'm sure Jason gets to deal with that all over the state. And there's, there's not enough funding and um, a finite number of acreage and a lot of people that are curious and now have time and ability to get out there. And how are we going to manage that? And that's an important question. So. I have a question for, for, for Matt and John. What you, you mentioned, Matt, about like, John, you have access to private land you can hunt and you, and you still have a vested interest in, in the block management program and you still hunt block management. What, what's your experience and experience been like having those two options, but still going to block management to hunt? Obviously the hunting is, must be worth it. Yeah, so there there's certainly areas of block management that that have some really good hunting still. Those areas tend to be walk-in areas only where nobody's allowed to drive ATVs or their vehicles. I personally think that all block management should be that way. Here's a parking spot. If you're serious about hunting, then you can walk in there and hunt. Um, those places tend to produce more quality hunts than the ones where people are allowed to drive around. Um, I, I have hunted both, um, and I have killed animals on both. I also hunt a lot of private land as well. Um, but, but really my aim is that the future of hunting is going to be about public land access. Um, and, and I, I, I just really, I really, I really feel strongly about showing res respect and, and being responsible to these people that, that allow this. Um, if we lose that opportunity through the bad actors or not showing good gratitude to these people, the whole hunting community is going to lose big time. Right. It, right. It, it isn't going to be, you know, guys like me that can still find a place to hunt. I'm still losing because, because other hunters are losing and that's, that's not the way this thing should work in my eyes. It, it, it's, you know, um, you, you just need to. You need to culture relationships, whether it's a private spot 
or whether it's a block management spot, the relationship with the landowner should be no different. You should be you should be checking with him in the off season to see how he's doing. You should be offering help, possibly. You should be packing a garbage bag with you and cleaning up after the bad actors. Um, there's a whole list of things um, that that I think a lot of people look past, and and there really should be an educational program. We had talked about this a couple different times uh, with our group here in Miles City that there should be there should be some type of a test, if you want to call it that. Uh, before you participate in in block management type situations, and at least ways, if you did that, and it doesn't have to be a big deal, you know, probably no different than the black bear the black bear identification test that we take in this state. It takes a few minutes. You pass it. It, it validates your 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 uh, permission to be on this block management. And if you get caught being a bad actor at that point. You have no excuses and you don't get to come back for, you know, put some teeth in it, maybe three years even. You got to rid the bad actors and then you got to have the people that are using it give more respect to the landowners and and build on it from there, I think. Yeah, I I, I don't see anything wrong with that. The more education you can get out there for for people involved in the program, the, the better off, right? I mean, Jason, do you guys have anything in the works for, for anything like that? You know, we, we do, we've had a couple, well, actually for almost 20 years now, we've had a hunter landowner stewardship course. It's very little known and it, and it, it is quite outdated. Um, you know, we, we, we have an online simple course and it, you know, you complete it, you get a hat and a bumper sticker, but, um, it doesn't talk anything about block management. It doesn't talk much about um the access programs as a whole or how they work or what you're you know expected behavior to do or what you're not supposed to do um so the the private land public wildlife advisory committee i mentioned earlier they're they're actually working on revising that course trying to update it a little bit um but the the carrot or the stick as john talked about isn't really there yet um, what we're, what we're trying to talk about is, you know, somebody takes the course, do they get a bonus point? Do they get a super tag opportunity? Both of those would require some legislative action. Um, alternatively, do you mandate the course? Do you require it? And similar yeah. to Hunter Ed in many States, you, you have to have legislative action for that also, um, to require, to require somebody to take a course and then have that opportunity is, is not a bad thing. Um, but we just don't have the the carrot or the stick at this point in time to really push it. Um, I think I think there's potential there to to do that. It's going to take probably some sportsmen's groups or whatever to help help push that. And the other piece of it I want would keep top of mind anyway is that these are private land opportunities, and landowners set the rules for access on their property. So for us to come in and say, well, you got to have this rule as your your rule, and like, well that that kind of rubs people a little bit the wrong way even though it's a good intentions or a good course or a good idea i don't i don't think landowners would turn it down i mean certainly the the interest is probably there but um just just the concept of the government coming in and tell you how you can run your land is probably not the best best course of action for us at this point um but there is that that potential that course does exist out there it is on our website folks can take it and we'll be happy to send you a bumper sticker or a free hat but um it, it's just not enough incentive it's just not enough stick to really push that yeah i i 
I gave public comment at uh, a PLPW meeting recently, and I was and I, bet I was advocating for a time. I still think it'd be great, but I just I could just tell it wasn't going to go anywhere. I talked to one of the game our local game commission representative here about it, but I was advocating for a like kind of like John was saying a compulsory training if you want to hunt private lands made it accessible through government programs because of my concerns about about bad hunter behavior on these places and then places getting consequentially uh the landowner taking places out of the program i mean but when you give your threat assessment that wasn't even one of the well it's, it's the, certainly a factor i mean you, you know juanita's experience um you know having 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 a landowner that has to tolerate some of that poor behavior they they don't like it you know especially at the time um my experience has been they hate hunters by the time hunting season is over uh myself included i take permission for our lands here uh i get enough that, I mean, that's, enough ask but yeah that, but I mean, that's by the time you know april may rolls around they're kind of like okay i can do this again you know what i mean it, they they yeah. kind of the short-term yeah. memory helps a little bit I mean, we're yeah, talking but... <laughs> about we're, we're talking about something that I think is incredibly important. We're talking about the future of hunting in our state. Yeah, we're blessed with a lot of public lands, but man, oh man, I mean, this is a big part of the for the for this podcast is devoted toward what Juanita made it sound <laughs> is devoted towards me having it all to myself a few minutes ago. But what it's really devoted to is protecting publicly accessible hunting publicly accessible non-pay hunting for the masses sure that's what this podcast is is all about and these in this block management program in montana is incredibly incredibly important to that and you know like if we're gonna if we're gonna save this thing i i you know jason i don't know if you've listened to the episodes or not but i'm on the i i take a very dim view of the future of publicly accessible non-pay hunting i i think it's under grave threat and you know when i hear things like that like i believe every i believe you know what you're saying but that's the opportunity and the risk this that when hunting season is over these folks are 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 fed up and we need to figure out a way to make that not be the case if we're going to save this thing you know like when I hunt block management, I, I still give the person some kind of gift, you know, give the landowner a gift. I still show appreciation. I wish there was a way, just a way through training or just educational programs, whatever, to make it so that. that I think John hit it on the head, uh, you know, cultivating relationships, just, just being a good human being, man. Um, that, that, that goes a long ways. Um, and, and, and it takes work. (laughs) That whole basic idea uh, of culturing these relationships uh, could be integrated into the hunter firearm safety courses. I have set through a couple of those with some youths in the last couple of years, and there isn't a whole lot about that. I think there should be more. There should be at least a couple more hours of conversation on culturing relationships on doing what's right. I mean, Really, to me, if a person just does what's right, it's so simple. And I think we all know what's right. It's just some people just can't seem to pull it together. 
<laughs> or when I see an elk, they lose their mind. Yeah. But. Oh yeah. Completely <laughs> go nuts. You know, kind of, well, I hope we get back to the, to the, uh, the payments giving the landowners a little bit. Cause I, I, I got kind of a, I think in a, an important comment about that. So, you know, let's work through this. And when we get back to it, there's, I'd just like to inject a little bit more there. Let's do it. Let's talk about it right now. Well, so we talk about a cap at $25,000 and possibly going to 50. And there's formulas in which you can gain that much money. Interestingly enough, in a previous podcast we did, I asked an outfitter that if he had a ranch of 25, 30 sections, what would would he expect to pay for a lease on that? And he he really wouldn't say. And later on in the podcast, I said, well, would, would $20,000 cover it? And he indicated that that might be a little heavy, but in some cases, maybe. So my point there is, is if, if we can sell to the landowners that the 25,000 or the 50,000 coupled with some other programs can fetch you, you know, hopefully in the area, 35,000, maybe more and more on a regular basis than just a few of these ranches that the next thing, you know, the excuse that we went to an outfitter for the money is no longer valid. And the next thing we have to worry about then is these lease companies coming in here and 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 selling these leases and and the best I can tell even at this point they're better off financially going with block management. But I got to do a little more research in that because I I could be very wrong there. But but imagine if you will that all block management participants received, let's just say, an immediate $20,000 a year, no matter how many hunter days they had, and then built on that, pretty soon the excuse that money was why we went to an outfitter or a lease company would be by the way of the dodo, and we would be winning more properties. Um, and and I think it's very doable. I You know, I there are all kinds of things in my mind that would help with that, but, um, or, or help with the, with the financial end of it. Um, you know, uh, one of them being like, can you imagine if an outfitter had to pay commercial property tax on the land that he had leased during the, the season? So for a month or two out of the year, he could pay commercial property tax and that money, that mill could go right directly into uh, block management. Um, a lot of people say, well, you'll never be able to calculate that correctly. But I think that's for people that don't want to t- sit and take the time. I think, it's, I think it's a great point. And if the minute you said that it's gone from 25 to 50, I immediately thought, well, that's freaking awesome because it's going to increase the participation. And it's going to be more opportunity for public land hunters to access private land. It's got to be that it's got to be that the future of the program rests on being financially competitive with leasing and less burdens, minimally burdensome 
So, I mean, both parts seem critical. The education part, the gratitude part, I guess there's three parts, education, gratitude, and, and financial compensation. And then, you know, then John and I are working on some other pieces too. John right now is, he's been going around town getting donations for, because we're going to do some stuff for, you guys have these block management appreciation nights where the participants come in and they're given a, a dinner and they do raffle off some gifts. And John and I are, ha- the last few years, and again this year, we've been doing some things to help, you know, raise some money for some appreciation gifts and things like that. But we also have a new thing going. Jason, I'd be interested to get your take on this. You know, John and I, over the last few years, we've been, we've done a little bit of some work projects on participating ranches to keep them, to encourage the landowners to stay involved in the program, fixing fence, removing fence, et cetera. And, and we've been meeting, John and I have been meeting with some other friends of ours in town at the local brewery. We met what, five, six times this lit? Yeah. And well, the idea that we hit on ultimately, we tried to think we're the, the goal was we're going to, we want to donate some time to, to support access here in Eastern Montana. What's the best we can do. We don't want to have it to be just for ourselves. We want to promote access for everybody. And what we hit on was that we are going to get our hands on the names and addresses of everybody that hunted in block management, that hunts in block management, hunts or hunted or mid season now in 2022 and then we're going to give out send on a mailer and try to get people to to agree to come out and as many as possible and uh participate in work days so we could you know try to beef up this work day thing and i don't know what do you think about the potential of that as being an, an added inducement for folks out here yeah, I think it's definitely not going to hurt. I mean, you know, we talked about earlier the relationship piece and the cultivating relationship piece. And, and Juanita mentioned that, you know, if they appreciate it or enjoy the opportunity, they'll, they'll value it. I mean, there, there's certainly all of those elements uh, in this conversation about just giving back to the producers, you know, from a from my other job, which is more or less working here on our family ranch and farm, um, you know, having a crew of people to come out and do something for you almost seems a little bit overwhelming, but I think you can get some work done. Um, it seems like a for, lot of babysitting. It's, it's like something that seems like such a good idea, but it, I'm thinking of it in my mind. I don't mean to like piss all over it, but I'm like, but, Oh my God. Then you no, guys, like, that, that is people. not, so, that's not something that's lost on me. And, and, it, but once in a while, like this ranch, we did a work project on this year. They had, a, they had a big fire. It's like 60, 60 miles of fence, I think. Yeah. So it was putting six, 60 miles of fence on fence. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and it is an enormous job and it, and it could not be more simple. You know, you just right. need yep. hands with yep. gloves on them, you know? So, yes. yeah, but I know there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, yeah so no, it's but more you're, technical you're right, than that. And you got people that aren't used to doing ranch work. There's a lot to think through with all of that. So, so. Yeah, you're go ahead, John. Kind of in response to that, we did a, um, 
a group of us went and helped a rancher with a fencing project two years ago now. I think yeah, it was. Fence removal. Fence, re- fence removal. Anyway, there was eight or nine of us, maybe even more, showed up that day. And the rancher came out of his house, and he looked horribly overwhelmed. He he was like, oh, this is it's never going to happen. He he was he he almost didn't let us do it because he he just was like like Juanita said oh, it felt like he was going to end up holding people's hands. At the end of the day, he was so overwhelmed at the fact that we pulled all of this fence, raveled it up, all the posts were stacked, every all the wood was separated from the steel. I mean, the whole project was done, and we didn't even spend a whole day doing it. And and at that point, he he changed from that very mentality of I'm going to babysit these people to this was really a great thing. And and he's been very appreciative ever since. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right, John. I think there's, there's that potential there, especially done in the right setting with the right group of people. I mean, we talk about building a relationship piece and, and, and maintaining access. We've talked about the financial, financial piece, but there's other things that are out there that, that we as an agency or we as a, a public of Montana have not yet explored or talked too much about just in terms of other incentives. You know, one of the big drivers right now is particularly for non-traditional or non-resident landowners is, is that coveted permit deer, elk, antelope, whichever. We've got people that can't draw the permits to hunt their own land, but here's, here's that, here's that carrot again. We could maybe give a little bit on that, that discussion. Um, you know, we talk about fencing El- elk are a huge problem on fencing. What if we had a uh, had a contracted or department staffed or or even crew of volunteer uh, with a kind of a lead on on fencing crews? So we'll come in and help f- fix your fence or help take care of your property for you um, in lieu of public access. You know, you you give up some public access, and again, the, the payment piece certainly helps. I think that's that's not lost on anybody. Um, but there's there is some other alternatives out there that I think we could discuss as a community that that probably just aren't everybody's kind of drawn there's so hard lines in the sand that we're not willing to to talk about but so so that that idea of providing a tag for a landowner that would partake in block management is an absolute wonderful idea i know so many ranchers in this end of the state that have large percentage of our elk herd spending most of their time on their private land that don't allow hunting because they can't draw that tag and many of them have stated that if they were given a tag that they would allow hunting now that remains to be seen but the idea of giving those guys a tag or even two tags for that matter there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i i think it's a great a great plan especially if they're willing to allow reasonable public access and i and I'm, that doesn't mean throw the gates open to everybody i mean clearly you can't just have however many guys show up with elk tags hey just because but but you know reasonable access give those guys a tag once again uh, i think it shows good faith with the program and uh once again it, it opens the door for for people to to once again culture that relationship with that landowner show him some respect and and who knows maybe even maybe even make a lifelong friend and a place to hunt even though the person may never participate in a block management program you know yeah, later on anyway you're right john we actually have a, a kind of a 
new old program doing just that actually the elk hunting access agreements the old house bill 454 uh concept uh it got bastardized bastardized in the last legislative session maybe rightfully so just on department rollout but at the same time we've, we've done so much to fix that program and, and we see that fruit right so so all it takes is that initial handout or the initial step to be willing to provide that opportunity for a landowner to hunt their own place. But then the same time, yeah, you're right. What level they comfortable with. And and it might be that, you know, the first year we're going to allow three public hunters the next year it's 10. Okay. I can tolerate 10. Now it's 25 or 50. You know, you don't have to be 2000 hunter days the first year you're in, you're in any one of these programs. It's just, I think there's some potential or or some common ground that we, we should discuss as a sportsman community um potentially with the landowner community and come up with some resolution to to better the experience and protect that future you guys talk about hey jason how long have you been in the position so i've worked for fwp for just over five and a half years Um, i worked i worked for south dakota game and fish for about seven years prior to that uh grad school worked in iowa dnr actually grew up in iowa um went down the Game warden path for a little while, went to grad school, moved to Pierce, South Dakota, pheasant capital of the world, and um, actually managed their education program. So Hunter Ed, Bo Hunter Ed, um, and then moved to Montana, actually married a Montana gal before we moved to South Dakota. And then we, we moved back here and we, we live here on the, the ranch now. Um, so that's my my free time is either hunting or helping move move cows has almost missed the podcast because i had to get a new bale to the cows tonight but i made it <laughs> barely in time so. so that was that's great and i'm glad i'm glad i asked because, but that because it's good to get some of your background but one I'm, I'm just i'm wondering how much how keen the each how keen each administration is on public access, does that, you know, does that influence the vigor of the program? Like in terms of adopting new ideas, getting more aggressive about enticing landowners into the program and keeping them in the program. Uh, yeah. Exploring, being creative, uh, leveraging creativity to, to keep the program vibrant. Does that vary? Do you think it vary? Is there mechanisms that would cause that to vary from administration to administration? Um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it comes from uh, just the legislature itself. So either new seasons, payment caps, whatever. So session to session, I'm sure there's some nuances there. Um in my short tenure under Governor Bullock, um, we did see the cap increase, I think, twice, if not three times. And now under Governor Gianforte, we're doing it again. Um, and then also this this year, we've been able to pick up some additional uh, additional FTE, not well, core base, but it's a or full-time good, equivalence for those full-time equivalence. But, but I would also say that with the caveat that they're on a, on a two-year basis. So they're they're subject to to go away um but we were able to pick up some staff so you know like i said i think there's been um one of the comments i heard from one of the plpw members that has resonated with me and i i'll steal it from him up in northeast montana is that we were all m's before we were d's and r's 
So I mm. think there's a there's a mentality there that that public access is valuable regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What I keep coming back to on this conversation is what I keep thinking about is the role of the sportsman in, in keeping the program vibrant. You know, we got to be, we got, the sportsman's got to be involved in that. And, and not being a dipshit when you're hunting the places, that's obviously, that's a, that is a no brainer. But then, you know, we got to get creative. Us sportsmen got to be united and get creative about other things we can do to keep the, keep the program alive. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I'm, I'm willing, we're all willing to hear and listen to any of the ideas out there. Ones we've discussed or ones that other folks have percolating around. Um, there's also a, a governor's appointed private land, public wildlife advisory committee. They're a, right now they're a 13 member uh, citizen committee that span interests from landowners, hunters, and outfitters. Um, they'll certainly be happy to provide that, provide them comment as well. And they'll provide that feedback with us. I, I help provide some just the administrative assistance to that council, but um, they're another body too, where, where they are some, some legislators in the past who've helped push some bills through, whether it be hunter behavior bills or increases to cap bills. Um, Representative Logie over there in Juanita's country actually has been one that's been a staunch advocate for for not only the hunter behavior, but then also getting a, a landowner a, a preference for an elk bee license in that part of the world and his part of the world. And then also uh, just helping out with the hunter behavior and increasing the penalties for second or third offense uh, trespass on private land. So. You know, and that needs, I think that needs to go both ways. What you just outlined was ways that the, the, that the outdoors, the hunting community can interact, uh, with you guys. But, you know, if you have ideas and your, and your coworkers have ideas, you know, I'd encourage you to reach out to me because like through my platform, I, I can reach like six or eight people, you know? <laughs> so, well, Matt, you, you brought up a point that, that made me think of my perspective. So Jason and Juanita, I'm in Pennsylvania and I've hunted the West, but my perspective on block management is from my hunting buddy. Who's also from Pennsylvania, Jeff, he hunted block management. Drove out to Montana, found a ranch, signed in, and shot an elk. So he had a quality experience. So I'm like, damn, you know, I mean, so it's 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 built on experiences, especially for a non-resident coming from the East Coast. So if you have a quality experience, you're going to have more support, more people talking positively and, and inevitably spreading the word about the program. Yeah, you're right, Jim. Thanks, thanks for helping support the agency and the program with those licenses. Because really, as a resident, we pay two dollars to keep block management lands open in terms of just a payment piece. Um, Non-residents are the majority share. I think it's like seventy or eighty percent of the program budget comes from 
the earmarks on different non-resident licenses. So that's that's a big big help is those non-residents. And as a an Iowa kid who had a state where it was ninety eight percent percent privately owned, I can kind of understand where you're at too. And just the value of of these opportunities is is huge. Um, Montana's two thirds privately owned, but still, it, it that's sixty some million acres. That I mean, it's a lot of opportunity. So. I hate to do this to you guys, but I have to jump to a, a meeting at eight. Um, so I'm going to. What could be more out. important than the future of publicly accessible hunting? No, Darling. No. And so thank you, gentlemen, um, for this uh, this opportunity. This has been super fun. And, and Jason, yeah, I really, I'm just going to take home what you said that we were all M's before R's and D's. And I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Juanita, oh. and thanks for your ranch's investment and willingness to be open to the public. I hope to stop by and say hi sometime we can meet in person. Please do. Please do. We'll get my contact information from Matt, and, and um, we'll make that happen. Okay, thank you guys so much, and, and keep keep talking. Don't let me... Bye, Juanita. Thank you so much. Good dear. Yeah, okay. Good See you, guys. Jason, what I did want to ask you is... so. Like coming from an outsider perspective, this this program seems so so perfect for the non-resident. Like Matt said, looking to do a a hunt out west, no cost, just you know, a blue collar hunt. Do you guys coordinate with any other states on your program, how it's implemented, the success of it. Because if, if if I'm correct, it, not every state has this. You know, I, I've had multiple states reach out and, and ask, how do you guys do it? How do you make it work? Uh, Wyoming being the closest. Um, we've been blessed over the years that we've got staff. We've got budgets. We've got big dollars behind the program. Um, you know, I think South Dakota, their, their access program is at least 10 times smaller. What's um, the name of that one? It's just their walk and hunting access program. Okay. Um, and then North Dakota, I don't know what the acronym is, but well, they have plots. Well, yeah, they do. It's a private land open to sportsmen is what plots is in North Dakota. And it, it's a little bit different because North Dakota is open and less posted. So all of their private land, if it's not posted, you're you're able to go. And they've actually started digitally posting some land. But um, yeah, North Dakota is a little bit unique like that. Um, we we've got we've got it pretty good here in Montana, and, and it is Jim. You're right. The the perfect resident or non-resident, the the no access or the zero hunt fees that you would have to pay to access some of these amazing properties is is, is just quite beneficial and no way of understating that so interestingly enough a good friend of mine lives in williston and i was talking with him the other day and uh, williston north dakota williston north dakota and so he was mentioning to me that in fact even even with the that they can just hunt just about anywhere without asking he stated to me that he always asks anyway which i thought was a great deal on his part and I said to him about landlocked pieces, and, and he indicated to me 
that in North Dakota, state and BLM, B, BLM pieces all have an easement from a roadway of X amount of feet running along a property line to allow everybody access to that property, regardless if it's landlocked or not. And I don't, I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that, but he says it's so. Yeah, I don't know on the North Dakota side. I know it with South corner crossing was legal, not to get into that debate here and now, but um, in South Dakota, corner crossing was legal. Driving section lines was legal. Um, hunting the road ditch or the borrow pit, as we call it in Montana, was was legal for, for small game, and including unarmed retrieval. So if you got a bird that went up in the, the borrow pit and you shot it and landed on the private landowner's fence, or private landowner's land, as long as you were unarmed, you can go pick it up. Um, it's it's interesting to think about what it was, what set of circumstances. Was it just by din of coincidence that Montana ended up with this great program and then other states have these much, much smaller programs or no program like this whatsoever? Like Colorado, I know, has no program. You know, like, is it just... What does it would it take to transport this model elsewhere? And it's a weird time to be thinking about that because I mean, the push towards privatization, the threat to the, our program, you know, I think we'd all agree. And Jason, you alluded to is is higher is higher than it used to be, you know. But so, but I don't want to I don't want to sit here and be pessimistic and think about the potential for it not surviving. I want to think about what would it take to transport this to this model to other states? You know, really, it's a vocal sportsman community and, and a landowner community that's willing to work together. Um, that's that's how it all got started, you know, was was the landowners, as Juanita alluded to, landowners seeing a need for hunter management, hunters willing to pay for it and find a place to go, um, and then the legislature willing to authorize it. And I think I think it's really quite that simple. Just how how vocal and how passionate are those sides and willing to do it? Um, we we don't run very much on donations in Montana, just in terms of how we pay. All of our payments are either through license dollars or, or PR Pittman Robertson dollars. That's how we pay landowners is through those those two sources. And and even uh, with the license dollars, it's predominantly out of state hunting. Licenses, exactly right. Yep. Yep, exactly. It's almost 80% non-residents. So whereas Wyoming or, or even Idaho, their access yes programs, a lot of those are running on donations. So, you know, they might get $30,000 in donations every year, which is great. But when you're running a, at least a seven or $8 million impact payment to landowners that, that you just can't, can't spread it out far enough to go to go to enough interest. Believe it or not, after my involvement with Hunt Quietly, I started looking into access programs in Pennsylvania, and we have a an access program. Um, but it the incentives are very minor, uh, like you alluded to, Jason. They they have a program, and if you're a landowner, you get free doe tags and, 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 and maybe discounted license sales, but there's no oversight as to who they allow on, how many people they allow on. So you have to basically still knock on doors, even though this program exists, but they could tell you no. 
So they could say, I have five people that are in the program and, and I'm not taking any more. Yeah. It seems like a, a potential avenue for a lot of states for sportsmen, sportsmen to band together and try to open up some opportunity in a way that benefits the landowner. I think it's the future. I think if there's to be one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So getting, getting back. Oh, let's go ahead, John. Did did you say Wyoming was working on something like this possibly? Yeah. I mean, they have their hunter management areas and their walk-in areas as well. Um, But the scale is not there. Uh, I've had a few different calls with some of their members of their wildlife uh, federation and maybe even a couple of legislators. And I think even a couple of their staff actually now um, they're asking how, how does Montana do it? How do you pay? How do you make it work? Montana, even though it's a got its flaws is still one of the, if not the best access program in the country. I think I would say the just sheer scale. I mean, Six million acres. I don't know how how big Rhode Island is or some of those states over there by you, Jim, but I'm sure it's the the size of the states, the same size of just the public access opened up through the the program. How how much of how much of that seems to be um some of these other states that don't have these programs, how much of that is really about their government? in that state wanting to privatize wildlife? I don't know, John, I can't really speak to speak to that on that front. I mean, <laughs> there's all variety of competing interests when it comes to wildlife in any state. So right. I don't, right. I don't know. So Matt, you, you talked about the, the, the advocacy stuff for, getting together and is there anything that's like tentatively scheduled? Cause I think like I mentioned it to my buddy, Jeff and some of the other folks that are like, I'm like, I'm going to go out there and help. They're like, I'm in. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. If you guys come all so these the are guys from, coming from Pennsylvania. Yeah. If you guys come from all the way from Pennsylvania, then we'd probably be able to get folks from our big urban centers right here in Montana, one would think we got a lot of, we got a lot of groundwork to do with this thing. So yeah, nothing's etched in stone yet. I mean, these problems that these potential problems that we talked about a little while ago loom large, like, will we be able to identify tasks that a, a rancher wouldn't have heartburn letting some strangers try to tackle for them? that you know and just administering it and getting the volunteers identifying the projects so yeah it to be continued i mean i'm not yeah yeah i i i, I got i'm not gonna drop it john's not gonna drop it we got a couple other guys that seem quite committed to it so i i, I asked i asked matt this the other day so maybe a year or two ago i read something or heard something about some funding that had come out of the oil industry um, that was that was supposed to have being paid for years and it hadn't been and and then help me out here Matt they they came up with it, it, it it's like huge it's per, yeah it's permanently funded now what's that called 
It's it's a huge uh, amount of money. Land and Water Conservation Fund. Yes. Okay, so is any of that money accessible to, to you as a, I mean, or is it stri- strictly Pittman Robinson and license license money? Uh, that's all that's all we've funded the program with is PR and license dollars. The LWCF has been for other community developed type stuff. I know playgrounds, swimming pools, that kind of stuff have, have been benefited from that. But what um, what I hear parks, what I hear from folks, I don't know where they get this, but just in having many, many conversations with people is that the program is quite solvent. It is right now because of PR. I mean, if you think about where PR is and where it's been over the last three years, but then every time we have something negative, either interaction with firearms or elections or any of that stuff, PR is quite solvent. I think it's all-time highs, um, national collections, all-time highs year over year. So we've we've been able to maintain our program and we'll look to increase payments through shifting that to a federal aid component. So as long as PR stays high and as long as the administration is willing to put the PR dollars into landowner payments, uh, we'll be just fine. When we decide if we, you know, payments, either PR collections go down, gun sales, ammo sales, archery equipment goes down or, or levels out, or we look to buy more land or something like that with a change of administration and we use PR for that. That's the the concern I have as we talk about increasing like payment caps, for example. If, we, if we're building that all on federal aid, is that a house of cards that we just need to be cautious of? Oh, come on, Jason. you got to cultivate a sense of abundance with me here, man. <laughs> Let's not make money an obstacle. <laughs> It'll The money will be there. No, I, I think I, I understand I your concerns about that. I'm joking. but You know, I honestly think it will be. I mean, there's a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a bill in Montana's legislature where you could donate your portion of your unsuccessful permit. So when we're not successful in our draws here, you can donate that money back to the block management program. I'm not sure how much money it'll generate, but it makes me feel better that I'm not getting mailed a $4 check. It's actually going to go to something good. Right. Anything uh, you guys we haven't hit on? Because the the hunt quality podcast is trying to thrive on uh, intrigue a little bit, I'm going to ask one one kind of juicy question, one uh, kind of uncomfortable question. So I don't think this will be terribly uncomfortable for you, Jason. I want you. I don't want you to worry about it. But I am curious to your take. There is, it's only, whether or not there's abuse on the part of landowners is not even a question. There absolutely is. It's just a question of how much. And what I mean by that is there are some number of landowners that let, would, if they weren't in block management, the hunting situation in their place would be exactly the same. They'd let the same eight guys on every year for their relatives and for their best friends. And I'm sure if somebody did some kind of audit where they looked at the slips that these ranches turned in, they'd find some ranches where it's the same exact people every single year. Now, I guess one question is what, what is the, what are the rules on that? 
presumably there's some kind of equal opportunity requirement. Uh, and, and I guess, secondly, how prevalent do you think that is? Is, is there any to, ever any talk about looking into that? You know, <clears throat> from a program standpoint, yes, you're supposed to be equitable opportunity for all. There's a, a caveat now with a veterans preference where veterans actually have a have a preference to hunt some properties if they they can prove that they have veterans preference for for reservations on places um we get that complaint infrequently every year from somebody that says hey i i called at eight o'clock and the ranch says they're all full for the entire season they're all full or it's the same guys come back every year and so if we get those complaints from hunters we do look into it we we do go count the slips we had one actually antelope uh hunter had called last week or two weeks ago and said i talked to the rancher you know the day i'm supposed to get reservations she says i got the same people come back every week and there's no room for you and so we went and pulled the slips and that that wasn't true um, we actually had different people every year um so i mean from a from a abuse standpoint i think it's quite low um as we look to the future you know the the goal would be for some of these places that are in high demand We've gone to some limited drawings, you know, where you call on one day and put your name on a list and then we randomize the list to get you on the property. We've gone to, um, you know, certain days or for certain properties for reservations. Um, and then we look at, you know, the future of trying to be even just an online reservation opportunity. I mean, I talked to one of our uh, Great Falls staff members just yesterday or today, and she said that we had missed like 2000 hunter calls to try and get reservations for some of these places. And that to me, isn't very good customer service either. So, so some kind of an online reservation component potentially there. Um, she, ironically, she said that they, they had crashed the Verizon towers for like 20 minutes with the volume of people trying to get onto these places. So we're looking at other alternative too. Like I said, maybe it's an online reservation piece to help build, uh, lift some of that load or or even just these randomized drawings on different places but it's certainly a conversation we have um annually or complaint we get from from hunters of, of i called the morning of or i called the day before to try and get on the place and they're they're full for the year it's like well let's go back and look at the slips and see see who's there and what they had um, well it's, yeah, I'm, I'm it's it's heartening to see that you're cognizant of that worry and that and it's more than that's heartwarming it's heartening to hear that you don't think it's that big of a problem no i i really don't i mean ultimately at the end of the day whether you're a landowner who's allowing block management hunters or you're a landowner who's not or you allow both it's private land access and it's up to the landowner to decide how they want to allow or not allow hunters so <laughs> You know, backing up just a little bit there, and it just came to my mind, has there ever been consideration to paying more for quality piece of property? So, like, clearly this guy has uh, maybe had left corn standing or left some alfalfa standing. He He's kind of farming for wildlife, if you will. Um, has there been any consideration for 
this guy's doing quite a little to attract and keep wildlife on his property that he can fetch a little higher payment. We've, we've had some of those discussions, John, and, and really um, it comes down to kind of the, the Montana model of hunter day impacts and how we pay landowners is based off of use. And so the, in theory, it's kind of self-policing that if you have a place that's not worth anything, their hunter days will be less. If it's, you know, a place that has quote unquote good quality, their hunter days will go, go up and, and the payment will reflect that. One of the things we try to be careful of is determining quality based off of whose definition. So I would say some of the, you know, and for what species, I mean, that's the other caveat too, is, you know, you might see a barren overgrazed piece of ground, but it could be good for some antelope opportunity, or you see the the corn stubble there and it could be good for a waterfowl opportunity. You know, the, the deer hunters might not appreciate some of the stuff we have, but the upland bird hunters love it. So there's just that balance too, of trying not to, currently we don't put any, um, monetary value towards either those types of uh, habitat things or even uh, species you know we aren't we aren't weighting species all species are treated equal in terms of just the value so that's the advantage to montana's model of a hunter day payment is it just kind of self-regulates how many how many block management places excuse me are walk-in only and how many of them allow people to drive around in an ATV and or a vehicle? Well, I would say most of the private land in block management is walk-in only. <laughs> that said, there's still a lot of interspersed public land. And so people treat the private like public and they go wherever they want it. Oftentimes we've, we've tried to try to limit the motorized travel as much as we can. Um, Again, it's kind of up to a landowner how they want to dictate public access on their property. Some places shut down certain roads and some places they keep them open. And so as a hunter, we have individual PDF map and rules for every single property. That's a big key for residents and non-residents to know is if you're going to come hunt Montana, we have a big overview guide. But then every property in that guide has got its own individual set of map and rules. And you can't get all those details on a commercially available product right now, such as Onyx. The roads that might be open aren't going to show up on those other products. You got to use the PDF and map and rules that, that we produce as an agency to see which routes might be open, which, which places have weapons restrictions, which places have species restrictions, those kinds of things. Because it is there, there is no... A standard set really of every property being the same, like a lot of states walk in programs where it's just one set of rules. Montana landowners can customize the rules and customize the maps and access routes and everything um, is, is really how a landowner can maintain their, their flexibility. I, I have two questions for you, Jason. The first is you're an Iowa state grad, right? And <laughs> go cyclones. We're, were you there when Kale Sanderson was there wrestling? Uh, he was just before me. Yeah. Gotcha. It's unfortunate to see him to go to Pennsylvania. I wish he would have stayed. Yeah, he's a Penn Stater. <laughs> the, the second question is, so there's seldomly how-to information on this podcast, but with hung quietly and Matt and everyone here being dedicated to hunter access. I think it's appropriate to, to kind of 
what's a guy to do coming from the East Coast that wants to hunt block management? Just a four bullet point or three bullet point. What's sure? What's a what's the approach you would recommend? Uh, so as a as a non-resident or even a resident, Montana's system can appear complex. It really isn't that bad once you understand what's going on. So in Montana, all of our hunting districts, all of our regions, everything has a number, and that number corresponds with an opportunity for a license. And in Montana, the confusing part, at least for me, was we have a permit and we have a license. So you might you might draw your general elk license or you might get a general elk license as Montana residents, we get them over the counter. But in some places you got to have that permit. And so that piece is a little bit confusing, but it's really on a district basis. When it comes down to what you can hunt, where you can hunt, all of these properties specifically for block management have individual PDFs, uh, a map and rules that are, that come out in early August. It'll tell you if it's a type one, like we talked about, or a type two, where you got to get reservations and it'll provide you the phone number or how you get permission. Um, so the big things with block are, you know, check those map and rules to see what you got to have. Once, once you find out where you're going to hunt. So that district, level license permit what's required once you've identified where you're going to hunt now you can identify what access opportunities are, are there and and so really it's it's you could get the big overview guide again we, we mail out i don't know 20 some thousand of those every year but it what really is crucial is to look at what is on those pdf map and rules and then um, match that up we have we have them on a, a department-owned hunt planner it's not as user user friendly as some of the commercial available products as well, um, but you know, for me, I, I would say grab that, grab, figure out where you're going to hunt, and then once you figured out where you're going to hunt and what you're hunting, look at the access opportunities there. And there may be some public land opportunities, there may be some some block management opportunities, and if there is block, then get that PDF map and rules, and it'll tell you all the information you need to know: what species are available, when it's open how you get permission, um, all those things and, and do all that homework prior to setting foot in the state or even, you know, midsummer or something like that. As you, you know, look for the next year, look, kind of look on the old, old information. So block is an annual program. Landers could pull out at any point if they want to, we get about a 95%, you know, six, uh, re-enrollment rate. So every year we lose a little bit, we gain a little bit. So it may change, but in large part, it stays the same. So look at last year's information and kind of get a game plan before you get, get here. Um, I had, I don't know, probably 15 calls on Thursday last week uh, from people trying to get their kids out for youth deer season. And then also a few more today, just I'm out here. How does your program work? What do I need to do? And by the time you're here, it's so overwhelming. Um, come, especially coming from the, the Midwest or whatever, that you're, you're already so far behind um, just to make your experience better, get that game plan out and, and figure it out before you get here. So kind of backing up a little bit again, as far as block management recruitment goes, does each region, I mean, is there like somebody actively going out and being like the salesman for block management? Are they approaching ranchers? Are they talking about cap increases? Are they talking about the PALA program? I mean, what, what, what are we doing 
to in, to entice more landowners to the program other than them just one day saying, I think I want to check into it and see what it's all about? So actively, we do some annual marketing stuff. So whether it be direct mail for landowners involved or even email stuff, just going to landowner lists. Um, there's that piece for, for Pala specifically, we've done a, a geospatial analysis and actually looked at landlocked public land and who has the leases on those land and then sent them a direct mail piece to advertise directly to them. Um, in a large part, and especially in Eastern Montana, where we have so much block management, we really rely on our wardens, our biologists, some of our habitat staff to have those conversations, especially as the winter gets going now, you know, if, if somebody's got a bunch of deer in their haystack and they're not letting in a whole lot of access, this is that opportunity to say, well, you know, you got a lot of deer and here's a tool we can help you manage them. And, and, and so that conversation happens. And then I also go to stock growers, wool growers, and also Farm Bureau um, to kind of, ha- I don't have a booth there, but just to have, have those conversations with different landowners that, that are, that are there and build those relationships as you, as you hear it on an access front. So we do a little bit of, a little bit of everything. I would love to have some active, you know, active salesmen out there in each of the regions to, to really pitch it, to really sell it hard, um, attend those coffee shops, attend those little work group meetings. Um, our access managers, I call them, there are seven regional coordinators, Travis there in region seven miles, brother, um, mm-hmm. He does a great job, you know, working with, with those folks there locally too. But um, ultimately it comes down to just man hours and, and time and, and dollars. I mean, if we don't have enough hours to hardly implement the program, it's hard to really be out there selling it too. So Sure, sure. You know, as far as the PLPW board goes, how much impact do they have on the rules governing block management? Or the ideas being being implemented as rules. They're a citizens advisory committee, so they bring ideas, they talk about ideas, but they don't have the authority like the commission, the Fish and Wildlife Commission, or uh, the legislature would have. Um, at times, that council has had some legislators on that that committee. It doesn't currently, but those legislators that have been on the committees have have helped bring bills that are related to those different concepts. But yeah, as far as an oversight or governing body, they, they aren't, they're just an advisory committee. Okay. How, how, how does a person obtain a position on that, on that board? Usually we'll do a, a, about a biennial call for applications. So we'll put out an application period, say, Hey, if you're interested, fill out an application, it goes through the the governor's office and because they're a governor appointed body the the lieutenant governor or the governor makes those appointments to that that board so we have a few that have carried over from the previous administration we've got a few new ones um there's a few that'll term out actually july 1st will be some of their term dates of 2023 so we'll be looking probably i, I would assume probably, them that are due. That, that's potentially yeah um so we'll be looking to to pick up some, some new members. And again, it represents a broad interest. Um, that's the, the benefit there is it's a, it's a collaborative working group that represents landowners and hunters and sportsmen and out, outfitters, outfitters and hunters and um, anglers and landowners. So it's a good group. Do you guys have any, uh, any other closing thoughts or anything we didn't cover? 
I don't have any other any pressing questions or anything, but I just say to anybody listening to this that this is uh mission critical right here. So find a way to find a way to support this program, find a way to start similar programs, get involved, fight for access. It's the future. It's the future of publicly accessible non-pay hunting. I think uh, as a non-resident, I think that if you are conscientious about programs like this and you're not supportive of programs like this, whether you hunt Montana or not, you are missing the boat. Because as this program has succeeded over the last 20, what, five years or whatever. I can't remember what date you said, but 30 years. These This program needs to spread to other states and spread east because we have the highest population of hunters and the highest population of private land. So I think as, as time goes on, the block management program needs to spread and, and, and be supported by all, whether you hunt Montana or not. Yeah. I, you know, in closing for me, I would just like so much to thank everybody that's involved with block management. This is, this is just such a huge deal for everything and to keep improving on it is, is it's just very vital. And, and I would dearly love to live long enough to see all of the states involved with this. I, I, if we had all of the states involved with this, think of the, think of how much less hunting pressure all the states would feel. Big time. I guess my other closing remark is thanks, Jason. This has been really, really informative, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys, and thanks to the landowners out there that make it possible. Um, and, and sportsmen, I mean, I don't, I, it's not lost on me who pays my salary. So thank you guys for what you do and, and for willingness to, to engage on the topic and what you're trying to do with the podcast too, Matt. I know it's a up, uphill different stream, but, um, thank you for, for trying to highlight the, the positives and the, and the negatives. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you, you joining us and, and I, I learned a lot and just, by researching the program and, 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 and talking with you and Juanita too. Uh, what a, what a, what a great uh, talk this has been. So, and thanks, thanks John and, and uh, everyone involved. Thanks, Matt. All right. Good night, fellas. All right. Take care guys. Thank you. Thanks.